Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day brings us all together. Marvel. your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few Podcast with me, Boo, and the evergreen, ever happy, ever real Sean, Sean Sewell. Hey, Seanie, how are you, mate? Good, mate. Good, good, good. It was great to uh, come off the back of our recent event and activities with The Few. That was uh, at the time of obviously recording this one. It was a great, uh, great few days there. Yeah, it was. Talk about a long time coming. Thanks, COVID. But getting a getting a whole bunch of teams, small businesses, medium businesses in a room and and hanging out and being our best selves was uh yeah, that's epitomizes the, the loving. Today's guest is gonna be awesome. I've been following Lloyd now for gosh, a few years, bought his first book in the airport lounge a few years ago. And I think this podcast is really gonna play to one of your sweet spots because you know you're all about the freedom business and Lloyd's going to share with us a, a few tips today to find some financial freedom through investing. Absolutely. Now I'm really looking forward to it. And also a background in uh, property and finance as well has definitely perked my ears up. We uh, managed to get uh, Lloyd to come on and share a bit of his journey and his story as well with our listeners. Awesome. Well, uh, no further ado, let's welcome him now. Today's guest is Lloyd Edge. He's a property guru, but he'd be the last person on the planet to call himself that. More from a teacher into a property empire. Lloyd, thanks so much for joining Sean and I on the few podcasts today, mate. Hi, Boo. Hi, Sean. It's fantastic to be with you guys and looking forward to having a nice chat. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean will keep it nice. It's all the rage these days in movies to show the end of the movie at the start and then actually run the movie. So tell us a little bit about life for you now, Lloyd. Do you feel like you're living your best life and you've achieved the goals you set out to achieve? When you're a kid, when you're a teacher, what does life look like for you now? Um, yeah, well, I think that's a good point. I do feel like I'm living my best life. I am still have a lot of goals. I'm still trying to, to achieve a few things, but we'll talk about that later because some of those things I'm trying to achieve is more to try to help others at the moment. But in terms of where I'm at the moment, look, I live in a nice home, drive nice cars, have a boat and got beautiful family, which more more important than anything I can provide for. And I've got the time to be able to spend with them and everything. But, uh, you know, it wasn't always like that. So that's something that I've developed over the years. So that's that's kind of where our lifestyle is at the moment, which is, which is great, but it's been a, a journey to get there. So Lloyd, I guess your story in a nutshell is life as a teacher on a salary, yeah, your 100K a year, good teaching job. And then something obviously sparked inside you and you started a journey in property development. But I, I guess you unlock some unique techniques in terms of how to identify the right property. And, and you and I, you know, we met and had a quick chat a couple of years ago and you said that realistically only 5% of the Australian property stock is really investment grade property. What was going on in your mind when you became a teacher? What was the motivator there? And prior to that, did you always have an interest in property and wealth or what was your kind of relationship with money and, and I guess in having a job to get there? Well, it's really interesting because my first ever business was when I was eight years old and I actually got my dad to build a little hut out in the paddock. I grew up on a farm and the little hut I ended up making pizzas from. 
So my mum would go and buy all the ingredients. My dad would supply the material, so we'd build this little pizza hut, and uh, and I'd make the pizzas. It was literally a pizza hut. But that was literally a pizza hut, and I'd <laughs> bake them in my mum's oven, so she paid for the electricity, and then I'd sell the pizzas to my parents. <laughs> so, uh, so I made a really good return on that. I thought, oh, I'm on to something here. This is how business works. Well, probably not quite worked like that, but it's funny thing is that when I was in high school, my best subject at school and for the HSC was actually economics. But at the time, I actually went to university and studied music because my other passion was music at the time, and I ended up becoming a, a musician and a, and a music teacher. I always had a bit of a, a numbers brain and a bit of a finance hat, but I was more sort of following passionate music because that was kind of what people at the time were basically saying, oh, you should just go and study music because you're good at music or you like music and all this sort of thing. So that's kind of uh, what I was doing, which was pretty funny at the time because when you do something like that, you know, everyone knows that you don't make, make much money when you, you do music as a career and, and there's no good jobs at it at the end of it either. So pretty funny way to, to go. And I never really had any career direction. And, uh, you know, when I was at school, even the careers advisor was saying, you should just go to, you know, go to university and study music because you like music. But that's not a very good career choice. I can say, Lloyd, that uh, I'm also a recovering musician. And when, we, when I did that for like 12, 13 years alongside other stuff, definitely didn't make any money. Let's just say that. It was fun. It does open up a question though, when so many people say, hey, you've You've got to find your passion in life and purpose and then lean into it. Music's one of those ones which is like, yeah, well, I don't know. Does that disprove the theory or is it just something where you've just got to commit to 10 years of living off whiskey? I think there's every industry is 10%, isn't it, about that? 10% are actually doing all right and the others are trying to catch up. Yeah, look, I've got to say, I, I had a lot of fun. I met a lot of nice friends that I, I still have through music. And I, you know, it gave me some great opportunities because while I was a teacher, I got the opportunity to conduct some bands and took them on some international band tours overseas and went to countries that I probably wouldn't have ever gone to otherwise. Some great opportunities there. However, getting back to your, your question before, while I was teaching, you know, I didn't start on 100K salary. That was kind of where I finished. When I left teaching, I was actually start, I started on about 50K when I first started. And for me, it was just like, well, how am I really going to get ahead? And I was fortunate that the schools, well, I guess fortunate and unfortunate in a sense, the schools I was teaching at were in quite wealthy areas, so mostly in the eastern suburbs. So I would be going and teaching in these schools and I'd I'd actually be inspired in a way by all these kids that I was teaching and their their families that drove all these really nice cars. They lived in these big, massive houses and they, you know, there was these private schools and they had lots of money. And I was thinking like, how do these people have money? Like I'm earning like 50K a year and I'm teaching music. So that was kind of the start of it. And I thought, I've got to start doing something that allows me to get ahead in life. And that's where I really start to look at what I can do. Yeah, property investing was not something that was ever in my my family. In fact, my parents would only ever you know, buy something if they could pay cash for it. So my dad literally ever had one property in his lifetime and he, it was a house that he basically paid cash for. So investing in things like that weren't in, weren't in the family. But for me, I, you know, I really started to sort of educate myself and start thinking about what I needed to do. And that, that's what ignited my interest in, in property investing back in the early days, wanting to get ahead to create some security moving forward for the future. Hey, Lloyd, one thing I found interesting in, in uh, when I got into the mortgage broking and uh, I suppose property space back in the late 90s is I reckon that a third of my clients that were buying investment properties back then were teachers. And a third of them were teachers married to another teacher. And over that 10 years, almost all of those, the teachers that had gone down that path had multiple 
investments that had gone up substantially that were positively geared by that point and helping them move forward. Why do you think that is? I mean, also you've come from that background as well. Is it, do they put something in the water? Do they teach you guys, you know, when you're learning to become a teacher about the fact that you should actually be, it's, it's not about how much you make, it's what you actually do with it that counts. Because for me, there was a very disproportionate number of teachers actually going in the path of intelligent and sensible investing. Yeah, that's interesting because I actually found the opposite of that amongst some of the teachers I was working with at the time. I felt some very risk averse people that weren't prepared to even buy a single property. And a lot of them didn't even like, you know, teaching didn't even want to be where they were. They wanted to get out, but they kept saying they didn't know how to get out, um, but they weren't prepared to take on any kind of risk with investing. However, looking at what the people I'm working with these days, I work with a lot of teachers and, and also other types of people on, you know, lower incomes, such as nurses and, you know, people like that. Yeah, these are people that are really looking to try to get ahead because it is possible to really get ahead and create wealth, although uh, you may not be on a, on a high salary. And I think that's one of the things that I really try to help people with these days is that, uh, you know, you don't need to be born with a silver spoon or, you know, be earning, a, you know, several hundred thousands of dollars a year to, to be able to get ahead. Uh, you just need to have those, you know, the right strategies in place. And, and like you said, Sean, with the sort of teachers that you've been helping in the past, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's just about having uh, probably, you know, some mentors, probably something that clicks, maybe they did a bit of research and realize that they've got to get ahead somehow. And maybe for a lot of people, teaching is the passion for them, but they know that they're not going to be financially well off in that way. Lloyd, what do you see as some of the psychological barriers that are self-imposed by people? That? Because there's there's so many stories. I remember reading a famous story in Sydney uh, three or four years ago where a janitor at a school passed away and left his family in an $84 million property portfolio because all he did his entire life was just continually invest on a janitor's wage. What's the psychology around committing to investing versus just living and spending? Yeah, look, I think with with a lot of people, I think they feel that there's there's a risk and and it comes down to who you, uh, the sort of research you do, who you hang around with. And I, and I feel that I always think that if you're um, the smart, smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I think a lot of people do get influenced by their uncle who might have bought an investment in, uh, you know, in, in that mining town that went went backwards and had a really bad experience with it. Or, you know, someone else had a, uh, you know, an investment somewhere and they had, you know, really bad tenants and they trashed the place. So therefore, you don't want to go and get into investing and, and all that kind of stuff. So people are listening to sort of the wrong sort of advice and, and that can be a real a problem for getting over that with in terms of mindset because like at the end of the day I mean anyone can really do it but you, you you really need to get over that hurdle and I remember when I was getting into investing that I actually had people in my workplace uh, like when I had about only three or four properties at the time and like I literally was only getting started and I had people saying to me oh you've, you've got three properties you're not going to buy any more are you 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 go bankrupt and I was thinking like that's a very strange way of thinking about things because the whole idea about buying property is to actually create wealth and to actually become financially secure. So it's definitely a mindset and I think it's very much an education. And from my experiences, it also comes down a lot from what people have been taught by their parents and things. So one thing I pick up on there is that, as you say, there was there was fear around. It was the same common things I would hear whenever talking to somebody in relation to properties or or mortgage you know finance for those properties was someone's trashed the place so it's bad to buy one or they've bought one in a location where the the market's completely tanked and i think i know back 20 years ago there was a lot less legislation stuff around it and i know a company that was selling properties for $180,000 without valuations because they could 
And they're only worth 120 at that point in time on the Gold Coast. And there was, that was rife. So the likelihood back in the past has been that there have been some very dodgy operators because the legislation and the rules of the game were much easier to be, uh, you know, manipulated at that point in time. What I've seen though in the reforms that have come through finance industry, the property and all sort of stuff in you know, over the last 20 years, right now is, is a safer time to buy because, because of the, I think the restrictions on people. But I, I would say, and, and I'll get your take on this too, is it's also being able to trust the person that you're actually talking to that's looking to provide you or sell you that property, isn't it? Yeah, well, absolutely, 100% sure, and definitely building that rapport and that trust um, of who you're working with and everything. But there's a couple of points there is that people often come to me and they want to buy something, you know, under market value or they've heard about how they can buy something at a mortgage sale and they can get it really cheap and all that kind of stuff. That's fraught with a lot of a lot of issues because what people don't realise is that if, if something's at a mortgage sale, then, you know, that might be in a lower socioeconomic area where people are having trouble paying their mortgages and things like that. So as an investor, you know, firstly, you know, it's, it's unfortunate where people are in that, in that sort of situation. But as an investor, you don't want to be buying into that kind of area. So I try to educate people about buying the right property in the right locations. So, you know, buying an area where it's a higher socioeconomic area, where the generally you've got two incomes per household, the general level of income is higher and yeah, the, the amenities, the infrastructure around is better and everything like that. So that education piece, and of course, buying in, in areas that tank, I mean, there used to be a lot of, particularly through the mining boom of the um, the early 2000s, there's a lot of education around that now, I think, and certainly the way where I work with my clients is looking at the amount of industries that you should be buying in, rather than just buying where there's one industry. And if that, uh, you know, there's one horse mining town and that, that horse leaves town, there's nothing there anymore, right? So you really need to be buying where there's, you know, there's, there's retail, there's manufacturing, there's education, there's medical, there's all sorts of things. So if you, you know, you're on a bit of a budget and you're looking for something in a regional location, there's plenty of good options to do that and still be buying in a, in a location that will perform very well for you. As well as my city properties, I've got plenty of regional properties that have performed well. And I've got one in a mining town, which I highlighted in my first book, Positively Geared, which didn't do so well. And I've still got that as a reminder of what not to do. So I can actually also explain to people what not to do and why not to do it. And this is why, because I bought this property for $260,000 and it was bringing in $800 a week in rent. At the end of the mining boom, it suddenly went back overnight to about $180 a week in rent. So it's about getting the fundamentals right because property investing can be very lucrative if you get it right. But you also didn't stop when you got it wrong, did you? You, le- you took the lesson. And I think that's right. the importance of education to remove that risk. Well, that's right. Yeah, that was about my fourth property that I bought. Now, look, I've, I'm currently holding about 18 properties, but I certainly didn't stop. When that happened, I kept moving. And probably, I probably had about six or seven by the time, and before that one particularly tanks. And then I thought, oh, actually, I've learned a lesson from that. And I just thought, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I was a bit depressed for a couple of weeks and I thought I'm going to have to swallow that. And, you know, it went from being very positively geared to being negatively geared and I just have to swallow that within my portfolio but keep moving on because you take the good with the bad, right? Yeah, and I'd love to lift it now to a more – so let's like maybe lift up above the concept of property and the fact that what you've created is the ability to create choice in your life, freedom in your life. And, and you know, one thing we do with, with the clients that I work with in our inner circle group, and, and I know that um, Boo works with some too, is it's about helping people to identify how they, they create an asset that 
creates freedom for them. And one thing that I've seen with a lot of business owners when they start to create success in business, they actually then hold their wealth in property. They may not make their wealth in property, but they do hold it in property, which obviously over time, if they're buying the right properties, helps to create that that freedom. And my question is, how important do you feel educating yourself to remove those bullshit beliefs that other people have that someone's going to trash every property that you buy as a renter and all sort of rubbish. How important do you feel your journey of educating yourself to become an investor has been to your level of success? Look, it's very important. I've got to say, I've never really had that fear. So I, I was never really worried about people you know, trashing my property. Some people kind of have that inbuilt fear. Look, I haven't really had any real issues with Tenants, a couple of times I you know, had tenants that might have paid late and I think I had one tenant that did a runner, but in my 20 years of investing, that only happened once. So, and like, you know, I've made mistakes and bought bad properties along the way, but at the end of the day, it's still about, about doing research. So even my worst properties were still not too bad at the end of the day. So, you know, it's, it's all about doing the due diligence, doing that research. And for me, it's really about understanding what the end, the end goal is. Because like I said, Sean, it is really about where you want to be and the lifestyle you want to create. And I think that's really important for people to understand that property and wealth creation is not about trying to become a multi-millionaire or, you know, some people say they just want to make as much money as possible, but I feel that there needs to be a goal. You know, people want to retire tomorrow or something, but I work harder now than I've ever done, but I'm really passionate about it. So for me, it's about lifestyle choice. It's not about retirement. It's about, you know, I can spend time with my family. I can you know, take them out on the boat. I can work really hard, but then I can also take Friday off if I want to spend time with my family and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's about just building up the cash flow and stuff because when, when I was teaching, you just can't take days off, you know, and stuff like that. So building up cash flow in properties means that you do have that freedom. And that's what's really important. And financial freedom means different things to different people. But that's the thing that I try to help people with. What did that look like for you, mate, during that transition? And it's something that you see people who are in a professional career stream, particularly those in their 40s, and they say, oh, I've been doing it for the man. I go out, they roll the dice, start their own business, put their nest egg into it, blow it, and then it's all it's back in there into the corporate world without the nest egg anymore. How did you manage your transition? Because obviously you have to do extras, right? There's extra work, there's work after hours, there's life gets busier when you're creating something and working at the same time. So how did you just manage life in general during that transition? Work-life integration. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing I want people to realise is that to be successful, you really do need to work hard because I think there's people who kind of think that oh, if you buy a couple of properties, you'll then you can retire and you don't need to you know work very hard. You can just sort of live live a nice, relaxed life and you know, go to the beach every day or something. But for me, just as an example, obviously I was I was working hard to build up my portfolio and I you know I was doing a lot of research with properties. I mean, when I was teaching, I mean, I was spending my lunch times researching property. I was spending my evenings researching property, buying properties and all that kind of stuff. But when I got to the point of wanting to transition and, and become, you know, I sort of opened my business later on, I was still teaching, but then I was studying at night because I obviously had all my qualifications in music, but then I had to get qualifications in real estate. So I did a diploma in real estate and became a class one license holder in real estate and all that kind of stuff. But I was studying that at night. So I would teach all day. And then I'd get home in the afternoon and I would then study because I I was doing my diploma online, but it was pretty much a course that they allowed you about three years to complete. But I completed it in three months by getting home and I was working from about 6 p.m. through to about 2 a.m. every night. 
uh, and then I'd be up again at five o'clock in the morning to go to work. So I, I was having that three hours sleep at night consistently to get that done. Now that was the qualification done. And then I, I had a bit of a break for a couple of weeks while I went off and climbed to Everest Base Camp. So that was my like little break. And then I came back and I, I started the business. And obviously that was, you know, that was the, all the thing about, you know, getting the website up and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, hard. How many properties had you had at this point in time? So, so there's obviously also your decision-making around, I'm going to start to invest into my first property. Did you have a strategy in mind or did you muck about first and slowly turn into a strategy? Or from day one, did you say, this is where I'm going? This is the first property? Because you're one of the, the few property experts out there that's very focused on positively gearing properties and creating cash flow as opposed to negatively gearing and riding capital growth. And I know you, I know you do both, but did you have that from the outset or did you learn that along the way through your investments? Yeah, no, I didn't have it from the outset. So probably the first three properties I bought, yeah, were in Sydney and they were, they were negatively geared. But the first one I ever bought was a home for me to live in. It was a, a private place of residence. It was just a little apartment, which later on then became an investment when I rented that out and bought another home to live in. So I wasn't doing it the same way that I recommend people to do it these days. But I was essentially buying um, and the first two or three properties were actually homes that became investments that were negatively geared. And then while I was living in those, I, I was then buying other properties. But yeah, that was sort of negatively geared. But the, the thing about that is I didn't really have any mentors at the time. I didn't really know what I was doing. Now, I bought my first property just after the boom of the 2000 Olympics. So I, I bought at the top of the market. Now, all the things that you're not supposed to do is what I was doing, right? So you had to learn the lessons to be able to teach them, didn't you? <laughs> Well, that's exactly right. And after three or four years, I had a few properties and I was thinking like, how come I've got all these properties in Sydney? And, you know, some of them were located close to the water and are close to the train and all these sort of things that were supposed to be good for, for properties, but they weren't, you know, I, I felt like I was paying lots of mortgages and they were negatively geared. So it was costing me money and I wasn't earning much as a teacher. And I thought, how come I'm, how come I'm feeling broke and I'm not getting anywhere and um, property is supposed to be a wealth creation tool? Now, for me, I think that's where a lot of people give up and they think, oh, property is not for me and people who get rich in property, obviously, that it just doesn't happen and whatever what happens to someone else. For me, I persevered, but I decided I needed to sort of think about what I needed to do to create, you know, my wealth and, and realise that I need to look at other things. And that's where I started to then look at the idea of developing, creating, just manufacturing equity. So that's where I started to do duplexes. That's where I started to look at subdivisions and then started to develop strategies then where I balance positive cash flow properties with negative gearing. So I'd still have the negative cash flow properties in, in capital cities, but I'd balance it with the, with the regional properties or the dual income properties. And that, of course, helped my serviceability so I could keep moving forward, particularly as a as a teacher, uh, you know, I was going to hit my serviceability, serviceability limit pretty quickly. So I need to sort of look at those sort of strategies. So I developed that along the way, essentially. So yeah, certainly not from the start. So well, there's a lesson there that you said just a little bit earlier is you were, you're working till three, getting back up to go to as teacher at five o'clock, getting three hours night's sleep. This whole thing where people think that on you know Instagram or Facebook or wherever they see this, people spruiking that, oh, you can become rich and and retire you know whatever by 25 if you just work three hours a day you know and all this sort of rubbish i believe that yeah, there might be one in a million or a billion that might just fluke some way of doing that but for all the rest of us it takes what you had at the time and by the sounds of it you're still working harder now just in your passion it took grit and determination that's what it took hard work 
Yeah, absolutely. And when I retired from from teaching, I think I was like 38 or something. So I wasn't like one of these 24-year-olds. I know there's people out there who supposedly build up big portfolios and retire when they're 22. And you know, maybe that happened, maybe that didn't happen. I'm not sure what the situations were, but generally that that doesn't happen because either you need, you know, property is still, even though I used strategies to create equity, like duplexes where you can manufacture equity quickly, I still had properties that you do need to have time in the game to create that growth. I mean, I, I've still got properties that I bought 18 years ago that have like tripled in value. So we still need that time in the game. So, you know, people who think they can be in property for two years and suddenly become a multimillionaire, that's just, it's just not the case. You just need more time in the game. It's good marketing. That's what it is. Well, it's marketing. And I think there's a lot of people that just sort of market. And, and yeah, there's obviously a lot of people that come up and market themselves because they, they get into a pro- property game and, and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's a conversation for another day, but that's not really, um, mm-hmm. it's not really what I'm about. It's taking a long, lot of work and a lot of dedication to get to where I am. And for me, it's about showing the people I work with what I've, what I've actually done and, and how I've done it. And, and that's why, you know, I, I put a bit of stuff up on, on socials around what we do and things, but I don't really put much up about where I live or, or the boat I have or anything like that because I don't need to do that kind of stuff. You know, that's the lifestyle I've created, but it's taken, you know, work and effort and years to sort of get there. And I think social media is the thing that's actually got people thinking that it's all about the fast car and the big house and the overnight success rubbish that's going on. And what I liked you what you said earlier was the fact that for you, your family's the most important thing. Yes, you have a nice house and a, you can drive a nice car and you've got a boat to take the family out in and all sort of stuff. And one of the things that, that we teach in our group is that freedom is actually achieved by getting enough passive income coming in to meet your expenses. Now, you don't need $10 million in the bank. You don't need $20 million in the bank. You don't need a million dollars of your profit coming in. If your expenses every month are $10,000 a month, you need $10,000 a month coming in without having to work and you're actually got freedom. And I think people focus too much on the Instagram lifestyle of wanting to have all this stuff. But if they could live in a nice place and have a nice car and all that sort of stuff, a lot of people could actually achieve that level of freedom and choice much, much earlier, you know? That's exactly right. Well, I think the problem is a lot of people borrow for that stuff as well. That's the that's the real problem is people can go and, oh, look at this, buy now, pay later, 60 months to sort this problem out. Or I can go, oh, I've got a great deal on the finance on my brand new Ford truck with every tr- trimming known to man and people don't even understand or, or contemplate what inflation is. But that's human nature. And, and I guess, Lloyd, as you would see, if, if humans thought like you, you would have a business with a thousand staff, but you know that they don't, right? You have to be that have that self-awareness to conquer that fixed mindset and that spending mindset. Yeah, definitely. I think the most important thing that you've said then and, and something I alluded to earlier was that financial freedom does mean different things to different people. And Sean, that's exactly right. Like if you've got $10,000 in expenses, then you need to earn $10,000. Financial freedom doesn't equal being a millionaire. Financial freedom is what you need. And, and the other thing is that you know, while it might be nice to, you know, it looks good on Instagram if you're driving around a Lamborghini or you live in a big house in the water. For some people, having just a nice family home that's near the park, I mean, that might be their dream home. I mean, whatever you crave, that's what you need to work for. And, you know, you need to set realistic goals. And that's what I try to help people with. And particularly, you know, if you're in a situation where you're you're a teacher and you've, and I've been there and done that, let's just have realistic goals and and look at, okay, where do you want to be in 10 years? What, what's the goal? And let's see if we can you know, help to achieve that. It's interesting as well in terms of generationally, those different mindsets around the generation of our parents or probably our grandparents, which was very much about saving and, and acquiring property and investing. And it just seems generation upon generation. We're, we've now got to the point where 
I remember when we bought a farm a couple of years ago, going to the bank and they're like 5% down, borrow 3 million if you're in Sydney. And you just think about that and you go, that's an inordinate amount of money to, to borrow for a house, as well as the LMI on top of it and, and everything else. How do you build a portfolio without overextending yourself? Like how do people know what's the right amount of money to borrow? Because I think, again, human nature is, oh, whatever, I'm, I'm going to take as much as I can give. And when people go to finance a property, they tend to finance to the maximum amount they can get rather than the maximum amount they can afford. How do you strike that balance? Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly in the current climate with some interest rate rises that we're seeing, yeah, that's something that we need to be even more careful of. But one of the things that I work very carefully with people on is that to, to firstly understand what their maximum borrowing capacity is and then try to borrow less than that so we're not getting maxed out. So you've got a bit of a buffer there. And also, depending on what the strategy is and, and, the, and their income and everything, and then also focusing on that cash flow because if they are on a bit of a lower income, then trying to get something that has you know a higher cash flow, a higher yield on it, so that it can help the serviceability to move forward to a you know to another property as well. You know the last thing you want to do is borrow to your complete limit and then buy a negatively geared property and then you just can't move forward at all because that's where you can just get completely stuck. You, you've got these dreams uh, that you want to achieve in ten years time, but then you just go and buy one property. And you know ninety percent of Australian investors just pretty much do that. They buy one property, it's either the wrong property or it's got the wrong financial structure, and then they're stuck. So that's really important. The other thing also is, is sort of having an exit plan for your property portfolio as well, because if part of your goal is to have your dream home, your dream home could be 2 or $3 million. Like I said, Sean, you don't want to be you know, having a mortgage for $3 million. So part of that goal would need to be reinvesting perhaps for a while and building up a nest egg of property investments that you could sell down some of them in the future with a plan that they'll perform quite well, that you've got some growth on them. And the profits that you've got from them, you could use them towards a, a larger deposit for your, your property. So, you know, if you if you put yourself in a position in 15 years' time where you can actually then have a $2 million deposit saved up because you've created those profits from investments, then you don't need to borrow that much from the bank because you've got a large deposit. So you can have your dream home without the massive loan that's what I I did with my you know with my dream home that that we bought. So yeah, those sort of strategies are, are really important, I think. Hey Bill, I like how you, you talked about the, the generational change. Now I remember I know one of the things my dad taught me that took me a lot of time to remove out of my uh, I suppose mindset and belief system was, mate, if you want it done right, do it yourself because you'll do it better and it'll be cheaper. Right? It was very much that thing. It was you get a loan, you pay it off. Debt's bad, but you don't use it. Whereas it's like it's gone the other way now that debt is just like going and buying a sandwich. Like it's buy now, pay later, this afterpay and this thing. And look at how the explosion of those types of companies and of the level of credit card debt and all that sort of stuff is that it's, it's this instant gratification situation. And when it comes to investing, there is no such thing as an instant gratification situation that supports that. It's always long-term, isn't it, Lloyd? Like you've got to be thinking, particularly with property, many years in advance as your strategy. You've got to look at it and go, okay, unless you're developing something right, and you're going to build it, add value and sell it, which is a transaction that has a limited time frame. But when it comes to property and building wealth, it is building it over time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely the case. And that's why it's also important to understand that, you know, a property cycle can last anywhere from seven to 13 years. So that means that if you're looking for a property to significantly increase in value, potentially doubling value, you might be waiting for 10, uh, you know, 13 years perhaps for that to happen with most of that growth happening in only maybe a two or three year spot. And a lot of the other 
time might be sitting fairly flat with minimal growth, maybe a little bit of a decline along the way as well. But you need to look at as long as you're comfortable that you're in a, in a good location and that you understand, you know, why you bought there and what the infrastructure, what, what's going well for that location, history shows that, uh, you know, property is a great investment over time, but you do need to be in there for the long haul. So I think the main thing is you, you need to be able to enjoy the journey. You don't want to sort of think, okay, I've got to buy property now because I'm, you know, I'm desperate to quit my job tomorrow and, you know, buy my dream house in six months. It is a journey and just enjoy that and enjoy every day. You know, at the end of the day, family is the most important thing. Whether you're living in rental accommodation now or whether you want to be doing something better, you can work up to that, but just enjoy every day as you're doing it. So to that extent, obviously, we're just coming out of one of the biggest boom, short-term boom cycles ever with the RBA and banks giving everyone free money. What does that mean for the market? We've had a, a shock in terms of the reduction in rates. We've had a shock in terms of the increase in interest rates. I mean, we're sort of in un- uncharted territory. So what would your advice be to people who are looking at getting into the market or getting out of the market? What are your tips for volatility? Yeah, well, I mean, I think at the moment, I think we're starting to see the interest rates, the increases slow down a bit. The last interest rate was 25 basis points. I think we're going to see that probably again next month as well, which is different to the previous few months where it was 50 basis points. So the market is going to start to stabilise. As interest rates rise, serviceability goes down. So people probably need to be a little bit careful of, you know, if they're looking to buy their own home, because what we have seen, particularly in the major capitals, you know, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, that the market has come back. But with people's serviceability coming back, it hasn't really helped a great deal for many first-home buyers particularly. So I'm finding a lot of people sort of looking at the rent vesting option, which is getting in and sort of buying buying an investment property and getting cash flow with rather than trying to buy their own home, which is probably it. Because I think a lot of people sort of wanting to buy their own home. But my advice there would be to make sure you're buying less than your, your maximum and trying to get good cash flow on it because... You do need to have that sort of buffer built in there and probably not be scared to buy away from where you live because one of the mistakes investors make is they feel that they know the area where they live. But the thing is, if I was to ask someone, you know, let's say, you know, someone who lives in Parramatta, for example, tell me about the growth rates in Parramatta or tell me about the vacancy rates in Parramatta, they wouldn't be able to answer any of those questions. Nobody ever has. But if they were to buy in Queensland and they had someone helping them or they did a lot of research on the market before they bought there, they'll end up knowing that area much better as a result of the research when they're buying an investment property there. So wherever you end up buying the property, you'll know the area really well. So I think one of the things is don't be scared of where you're buying, but you just got to buy in an area that makes sense, both financially and obviously for the, you know, for the demographics and infrastructure that you're buying there. But I think, Lloyd, people feel some sort of comfort being able to drive past the property they own because it's just down the road from where they live or oh, I like the suburb where I live. So surely that's going to be a good investment. But when people think about it, my view is they need to look at that property is an investment. If they own shares, do they need to live down the road? Say they had shares in a bank. Do they need to live down the road from the bank's head office to feel comfortable to buy shares in the bank or in whatever it is? Because in the end, it's an investment. And I think there was, I know that years ago there was a study done and, and people who bought properties interstate were like, oh, you know, that was a bit hesitant. And they, and they saw it once and they never saw it again for like another 10 years because they didn't care because they were getting rent, they were paying the bills. It was over time going up in value. And once that comfort's gone, and I, and I think it's those, I think it comes back again to what we talked about before about education, the importance of educating yourself and working with somebody that you trust to achieve the outcome. You've got to have the research to, to not buy into the sentiment, right? Like that, that's the issue. It's all, you know, FOMO on the way up, 
uh, whatever you call it, on the way down. Yeah. FOMO was a big issue last year because when the market was really booming, like so many people at the start of the pandemic in like in about May 2020, you know, people were like selling properties. Yeah, I think it was going to be a crash, right? Because economists were coming out and saying it was going to be a forty percent crash, but it's just it just never happens. Not in the good areas, and yeah, people who actually went in and bought property and held property actually did very well during that period. But as the market started to really boom and you know, reach its peak last year, people everyone wanted to get on the bandwagon, and Brisbane was a major case of this where properties were just like selling like hotcakes, like it was just crazy. But it's too too late. People are just overpaying, and now there's pain. Because you know those properties have now got you know a little bit of negative equity there. Some people are trying to sell properties and they pay too much for the properties and and all that kind of stuff. So again, people need to be very careful not to to follow others, not be like sheep. And certainly, if you hear something in the media or if you read something in a you know in a property investment magazine, that's lag data. It's too late. If you see something written there, yeah, that was printed probably two or three months ago before it actually came out to when it was released. You really do need to do research. You're more ahead of that. You need to be more on, on song or get someone in the space who can really help you who's got real-time data and has really got the know-how and the, the everyday market knowledge who can really get you into something. They're the sort of things that I think are really important because otherwise you just end up following everyone else. I always think that if you do what everyone else does, you get the same results as everyone else. And let's face it, you know, 98% of people end up working for the man their whole, whole life and don't really achieve that financial freedom. Yet, I think it's pretty much possible for most people to be able to do, but it's just about, you know, getting out there and, and educating yourself and having the right strategies in place. What would your simple strategy be for someone who's kind of just into their 30s, they just still haven't quite, living their best lives, maybe spent a little bit too much, too much avocado on toast, and now they're, they're like, wow, I'm, I'm uh, 32. My partner and I are thinking about getting married, double income, whatever the average is in Sydney now, about 180 or whatever it is between you. How do you end up owning your, your own home in the suburb you want to live in? Let's call it the inner west. What's the simple way of doing that? I don't think there's any simple way of doing that. So, I, you know, obviously property prices are high in Sydney and, and all that kind of stuff and try to buy your first home in the inner west or something. But the f- first place to probably... That's where you want to end up. That's, that's like your forever home, you know, in, in your 40s, yeah. you want to be settled in there. I think the first step I encourage people is to firstly really have a budget. So really understand where all your outgoings are going because, you know, if you're having avocado on toast every day and you're having, you know, Netflix and you're doing some takeaways every Friday night, that can really add up. And sometimes if you're on a pretty comfortable income and you don't have a lot of expenses because, you know, you're sort of just sort of paying rent and you're sort of living living a good life and whatever, you probably don't realise where your, all your money's going, except you don't really have a lot of savings and all of a sudden you want to buy a, buy a home. Because uh, sometimes you get to that age and you think, oh, actually, I'm in my mid-30s and want to get married and actually I need a you know, need to buy a home. So, so I think really budget, really understand that. The other thing also is, you know, get rid of your credit cards because that can really come against your, your serviceability. So some people um, who also are living a pretty good life might have high credit card limits, keep them down. Like I never even had a credit card till I was about 35. And the only reason I ended up getting credit card is because I think I needed them to book flights or something when I wanted to go somewhere. So I couldn't, couldn't do with that one. Those little things I think are important. And these days, banks look a lot more closely and scrutinise you on your spending habits, where all your money's going and everything. So that's number one. And then I think in terms of getting into your dream home in the inner west, then I think you know your first thing would be to get into the property market. And if you're on a 180 combined income, you've probably got the serviceability to to borrow a bit. So you know if you you might be able to borrow 900 million 
dollars thereabouts. That might be the case that you could get in and do maybe a couple of um, property investments to start with outside of Sydney. Uh, you know, we might be able to look at doing a, a regional ma- a market or maybe something in the Adelaide or the Brisbane markets, get into the market and then sort of set a plan to get into that dream home, you know, later on and then use our strategies to sort of move towards that. Getting in and trying to buy that, that inner west home straight away might be a bit of a challenge. So you're building yourself up with some investments to start with, I think would be a, a you know, good place to start. So what, what about the concept of adding value? If someone was to, you know, maybe they're a little bit handy or something to buy the worst house in the best street, so to speak, and, and maybe gradually do some improvements. Do you think that's a strategy that some people who are capable of doing that type of thing with their own two hands would be beneficial or would you kind of steer clear of that? No, definitely. No, um, I've actually got a lot of clients that do, uh, do that kind of stuff and they've done actually really well, especially if you're handy. I've even got clients who, you know, we, we get tradies in and do that kind of stuff, which can cost a little bit more if you're paying someone to do it. But if the numbers stack up and the market's good, then that can also work. I mean, I've renovated probably two of my investments over the last couple of years, but they're in Queensland. I didn't do it myself. I'm not very handy anyway. I wouldn't be able to do anything. Don't even know which end of the paintbrush to hold. Got at the demo, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but certainly if you can do it yourself, definitely. And, you know, if you can buy something that's close enough to where you live. And if you live in Sydney, for example, it might be a bit expensive for you to buy an investment in Sydney, but you can buy it a couple of hours away. So it might be up around the, the Newcastle or the Hunter region. There might be more in your budget. Then, yeah, look, definitely cosmetic more than anything. And then you find something that is you just need to do the, you know, maybe the floorboards, some updating the window coverings, the, uh, the kitchen, the bathroom, a paid job, bit of landscaping on the outside. For that, you know, I generally recommend that you probably spend about 5 to 7% of the property's purchase price on, on a cosmetic renovation. And then, you know, you should be able to get a, a you know, good return on that. And like you said, you're buying the worst house in the best street. I think one of the biggest things about that, though, is making sure you're buying the right property. So you do need to look at what the comparable sales are for renovated properties as opposed to non-renovated properties street and in that suburb because you don't want to buy in a suburb where you're going to overcapitalize because if you renovate it, it's not going to be worth much more. So it takes some research. But if you get it right, it can do very well for you. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle. The business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. And what you've said the whole time is the way to get it right is to do research, is to educate yourself, is to understand that you're making an educated decision, an educated investment, and not just buying something on a whim because an agent that you were talking to had an open house and you were driving by and you didn't do any of the research because that's where obviously mistakes are going to happen. So obviously you've had an interesting journey of music to teaching, to property, to business, to entrepreneurship. If you could take some of one or more of your key things you've learned and go back to when you were starting out, maybe when you're starting out as a musician, but unsure of what you wanted to do, what piece of advice would you give to yourself to take forward? I think the biggest bit of advice for myself would be to understand more about what I wanted to do in the first place and probably try to seek out mentors, which is kind of hard, you know, because when you're young, you often don't 
you don't know that. And maybe that's where you should have older people coming forward to you to be mentors or something. But, you know, I would have loved to have been 20 years old and, and getting into the property market. Now, I've got a lot of people that are 19, 20 who've read my books and they're coming to me for some advice and already wanting to start the property journey. And I think that's fantastic because I was 28 before I bought my first property. One of the biggest bits of advice I can give to people is that having a full-time job is not job security. You're not secure like that. I think we've probably seen that more than anything over the last couple of years during the pandemic when people were just unfortunately losing their jobs and things. And one of the things that would really have helped people is if they did have a second source of income you know, from investments. Because if you had cash flow coming in from investments and you lost your job, then at least you've still got some, some income coming in. Just an example of that is you know, for me, because at the start of the pandemic, I mean, I had no idea how my business would go, whether people would still want to buy property or not. But I wasn't worried about that because I had my portfolio which is positively geared anyway. So I knew that I had several sources of income. So setting yourself up like that, I think is really important. Uh, you don't want to set yourself up with just one, one job and think that's, that's going to be a job. And then you're going to get another job when you're sick of this job. That's not really been secure, but that's the way we've been taught in the past. So I think it's really important to, to understand that you need to create your own destiny and you need to create, you know, you create your own lifestyle and do that through education and research. And ultimately it's investing that gets you there. Awesome. Well, incredible journey. Obviously, uh, as said, you know, from the, the music to teaching to entrepreneurship or to investing to entrepreneurship, inspiring story. I know that a lot of people can take the lessons that you've had in your life and, and also look up Lloyd as well. Look up Lloyd if you want to get one of his books or actually connect and, and look at what he does and how he does it. I think that's important, mate, as well, because as you said, Sean, it's all about learning and the best way to accelerate your learning is by hanging out with a teacher, right? And, and I think with with what Lloyd's done and that service-minded uh, attitude, uh, having got his own life sorted, helping people, read the books, Positively Geared, buy now, check out his website, which is ozpropertyprofessionals.com.au. If you just Google Lloyd Edge, two L's, you'll find a lot of information there. And I think, Lloyd, your wealth mindset, your groundedness, and your, your humility is something that anyone that would do business with you would value. And I can see you, you, you're one of those, the few people in property that has no vested interest and, and the genuine success of your customers at heart. So thanks so much for, for sharing your morning with Sean on it. Thanks guys. And that's been great. And I hope your listeners get something out of it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. This has been The View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at viewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.